I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. How do you respond when you see someone doing the wrong thing? Do you feel angry, ready to blame or punish? And how do you respond when you've done something you shouldn't have? Do you feel guilty in yourself or ashamed in front of others? These emotions are so pervasive, it's tempting to think of them as necessary to an ethical life. But today's philosopher argues it is possible to reframe ethics so there are no moralizing emotions, no anger, blame, or guilt, yet we can still make clear judgments and express strong opinions about right and wrong. Dr. Tyler Paytas is a research fellow with the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy at ACU. He's interested in the language we use to talk about ethics and the way that affects our capacity to change, or even to consider different points of view. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks, Deborah. I'm happy to be here. I believe you had your bike stolen recently. Were you angry with the thief? Yeah, no, I had an unusual reaction, at least for me and probably for many people. Um, when I realized that the bike was stolen, I, I first, you know, had this feeling of distress, but um, I quickly thought about the fact that I am in this fortunate position that I could just go to the store the next day and get a new bike. And I thought about how the person who stole it um, was probably in a position where they felt some sort of desperate need. Um, and so it just seemed like um, anger wasn't really the, the emotion that came over me um, once I thought about those things. And I found that not getting angry and having this different response, you know, actually thinking about what I'm grateful for made the rest of my day much better. And so it, in, in, in fact, it turned out to be a good thing because um, I felt good about myself and I was sort of in a, in a positive state of mind for the rest of the day. Wasn't it difficult to do, though, not to be angry? Um, I mean, in that case, I think a lot, a lot of it has to do with luck. You know, sometimes we just, um, depending on how much sleep we had the night before, all sorts of factors can affect our emotional responses to things. But what I've been trying to do for the past year or two is try to cultivate this tendency to um, not have anger arise. And it's actually something that you can practice and get better at. And I think it's a really worthwhile goal to pursue. Um, but of course, given the way we are, it's very natural for us to respond with anger when someone steals from us, for example. But it still seems like it's worth trying to become the type of person who doesn't have that response. So you would accept that to be angry is natural, but you would argue that it's not helpful in creating an ethical position. Yeah, it's it's definitely natural. Um, but if you think about it, there are lots of other emotions that are clearly natural that we would say overall, that's not the type of response it's good for a person to have. Things like jealousy or envy. Um, it's natural for me to feel some envy when a friend or a colleague, maybe my colleague gets some promotion and I hope, hope to get a promotion and I feel some envy. That's very natural. But if I think about what type of person do I want to be, I want to be the type of person who's excited for my colleague who got the, the promotion or excited for my friend or even a stranger who had something good happen to them. So, yeah, anger is, is very natural, but um, I think it has instrumental, instrumentally bad effects. Um, and I also think it has intrinsic disvalue. It's, it's bad in itself. It's bad for me. It's bad for society. So overall, I should try to be, become the type of person who doesn't have the anger response. What about guilt? Shouldn't the thief feel guilty once they realize that they shouldn't have stolen your bike? 
Yeah, I'm less confident about guilt, and it's not as clear to me that guilt is bad. Um, so it's it is clear to me that if someone stole from me, or if if I stole from somebody else, um, I should have some sort of motivation. I should recognize that I I should not have done that, and I should have motivation to try to to make amends, um, maybe to apologize, and be motivated to make sure that I don't do those sorts of things in the future. Um, it's a further question of whether I should have this this negative feeling inside, this painful feeling and this sort of approbation of myself or this negative view of myself. And I think that can definitely go too far and there's some worries about it. But at the very least, I should be motivated to, to make amends and to try to become the type of person who doesn't do these things in the future. And I think you can get that without relying on guilt and certainly without relying on somebody else being angry or being angry at yourself. I don't think anger is necessary for these um, useful and good responses. So traditionally, we use anger and guilt and shame as moralizing emotions to control ourselves and control others. How are we going to persuade people to do the right thing without these emotions? Yeah, so I think people can be persuaded by reason. Um, now there's limits to that. Sometimes, you know, you can reason with someone and explain you know, via a, a sound argument why um, they ought not to have done that or why they ought to behave differently. And sometimes that's just not going to work. Um, but there are things that you can do. One thing that Seneca says, um, he's a Stoic philosopher who was very skeptical of anger. And he says, if you're dealing with someone who's just not going to respond in the way that they ought to, um, if you don't express anger, well, then you can fake anger. You can pretend like you're angry, and maybe that could be useful. Um, and I also don't want to say that emotions across the board need to go away. Um, you know, you can express uh, sympathy, you can express pity, um, and you can have gratitude. Like, there's, there's other positive emotions and attitudes that can be quite useful for convincing people to um, maybe change their behavior if they're engaging in destructive behavior. But you would think that we are able to remove all emotions from making ethical decisions? Um, at, at the very least, I think we can make progress by changing some of the, the language that we use. Because some of the language, when I, when I talk about an action being morally wrong, I think there's a conceptual tie to blameworthiness and the thought that I'm justified in being angry with you. And I think that that becomes problematic because then it could make you feel defensive and it can sort of increase animosity between us. And I think that that's we're better off avoiding that. And so maybe instead of saying it was morally wrong for you to do that, I could, you know, ask you why you did it and say and explain why I think you had really good reasons not to do it. Um, and when I do that, there's not this clear connection where I'm, I'm judging you in a way and trying to say that I'm somehow superior to you because I didn't do this wrong thing and you did and, and you are now somehow lower um, and you should feel guilty and I should be angry with you. I think that's the sort of thing that becomes problematic. Um, and so my view is that talk about what there's most reason to do rather than what's the morally wrong thing that you did. Can you give me an example of where this would change the way we deal with ethics? Yeah, I think one example is uh, comes up a lot when we're teaching. For example, if you're teaching undergraduate ethics at university, you might talk about something like um, ethical veganism or vegetarianism, and we're going to have a discussion about whether um, we ought to be consuming animal products. And you could frame the question such that you say, is it morally wrong to eat meat? And if you frame it that way, I think a lot of people are going to have this defensive reaction because they say, well, I doubt that it's morally wrong to eat meat because my family 
and all my friends and my sweet grandmother, she cooks meat for me all the time. Um, I don't want to say it's morally wrong because it's just implausible that my grandmother is someone who um, is blameworthy or, or we should be angry with her. And, and that seems not like not likely to be the case. And so people are like, no, I don't think we ought to be vegans or vegetarians because I don't think that consuming animals is wrong. But consider if instead we just put the question, is there more reason to be a vegan or to be a meat eater? Well, then we're not uh, bringing out these emotions where people are going to be defensive or wondering, am I blameworthy or is my family blameworthy? Um, should people be angry at us? It's more about, is there more counting in favor of this option versus that option? And I think if you take the emotions out of it or try to minimize them, um, people are going to be able to think clearly um, or at least with more clarity, and that could be very useful. But don't we rely on emotions for our ethical intuitions? Yeah. Um, when we're making judgments, a lot of times emotions are going to be sort of driving the, the judgment that we arrive at. Um, and this is a, a contentious is issue in moral philosophy nowadays. People, there's sort of the, the rationalists uh, who think that we should try to minimize the role that emotions play in our ethical judgments. Um, but there's also people who think that no um, emotions are very useful and that's just part of what it is to, to be a human agent is your emotions color your judgments and that's perfectly fine. My view is um, if I'm trying to figure out um, how I ought to live and what I ought to do and what I have most reason to do, I want to minimize emotions as much as I possibly can. And this is, it sounds strange, but it's, it's actually a common sense thought. So um, if you're trying to make a big decision, but you're very angry or you're worked up, you're in some sort of intense emotional state, and you might say to yourself or somebody might advise you, hey, maybe you should wait till you cool off a little bit before you think this through, and maybe you'll be able to think more clearly. Um, and that's just the, the motivation for this view that I'm taking is um, my emotions, sometimes they happen to track with what's the right thing to do or what there's most reason to do, but a lot of times they lead me astray um, you know, again, talking about things like envy and jealousy, anger, um, a lot of times when I look back and I was in a fit of, of jealousy or anger, I wasn't thinking clearly and I acted in ways that I really regret. Um, and so uh, to the extent that it's possible, I want to make sure that my, my thinking about ethics and how I ought to live isn't uh, overly influenced by those emotions. It seems a bit utopian to expect that people won't be angry. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and I am not to the point now where I am immune from anger. Um, I can still get angry depending on the circumstances. Um, but I still think it's uh, a good goal to strive towards. And I, I found in my own life, I have gotten better on this front. Like I am much less quick to, to become angry. And I feel like my life is better for it. Now, I'm not going to get to the point where I don't get angry or I don't get jealous or I don't experience envy but it still seems like a, a worthwhile goal to strive for. How does this rational discourse help us in the moral dilemmas in our life? Does it make us better at solving those situations where there's a contradictory moral question? Yeah, so I think even if we moved away from the distinctively uh, moralizing language, you're still going to face practical dilemmas that are very difficult to solve, um, you know, I might have various commitments and I get myself in a situation where um, I just don't have time to keep my commitments and I have to decide which one or I have to decide between helping someone who is in need of my help right now, but I made a promise to somebody else that I would meet them at a certain time and now I'm in this dilemma. Um, I don't think that focusing on, say, reasons rather than um, moral wrongness or emotions 
is inherently going to allow us to um, resolve these dilemmas. But again, if you take some of the emotion out of it, I think it can help us think more clearly. And that certainly is a, a better position to be in where you're calm and you're thinking in a more clear manner rather than having your emotions sort of make it difficult to, to, to focus and really think clearly. And in that example you gave, it's often the case that whatever you do, you feel guilty. Mm-hmm. If you go to this friend, you feel guilty. And if you go to that friend, you feel guilty because either way you didn't help the other one. So I guess if you take your position that guilt should be completely out of the equation, then whatever decision you make, you don't need to feel bad about it. Yeah, I certainly think that um, there are situations where um, you have what they call a moral dilemma and either option is bad. It's going to have some bad consequences for people. Um, I certainly think in those cases, um, there's no need to feel guilty, um, especially if getting finding yourself in this dilemma was no fault of your own. Now, it might be the case that you made some poor choices and that's the reason why you're in this bind where you either option, both options look bad. And in that case, you, sure, you certainly should... Um, have a sense of regret that, oh, I made a mistake there and you should be motivated to um, make sure that that doesn't happen in the future and you should be motivated to make amends to whichever person um, you end up disappointing or or making their situation worse. Um, so you should still be engaged in the sense that you, you're, you're striving to become a better person and you're motivated to maintain your relationships and to make amends when things go, go wrong. Um, but I don't think that that requires feeling this this sort of uh, condemnation of yourself and, and this um, this guilty feeling. Now, again, I'm not as worried about guilt as I am anger. I think anger is the one that's really destructive um, and that I'm most keen to, to have us move away from. But yeah, to a certain extent, I think guilt can be problematic as well. Why do you think we have developed a moral structure which is so dependent on these moralizing emotions? Yeah, well, I think there's a plausible evolutionary story about how these things came about. Um, I mean, it would make sense that I, you know, if you think about our ancestors, you know, 100,000 years ago, it would make sense that um, if somebody betrays the group or somebody, you know, breaks a a commitment that they made to me, um, I would feel some anger towards them in response. And it would be adaptive because if I feel anger, that often goes along with this motivation um, to exhibit some sort of hostile behavior towards that person. And then that will in turn make this person less likely to engage in this this uh, transgression in the future. So there's an adaptive evolutionary account of how we got to have these feelings of anger um, and then how they got to be part of the, the moral discourse. And I think there's also some... Um, historical contingent factors with with modern society that uh, enabled these moral emotions to be central to to our ethical discourse. But I think, although they might have been useful um, back then, I think there's a good case to be made that they're not useful anymore. So you would see moralizing emotions as actually obsolete? Yes. Now, uh, they can be obsolete. Now, this isn't to say that I, uh, everybody right now or any individual person right now could just um, drop all the, the moral language and immediately get rid of the emotions. Like it's, it's something that I think we should work towards. Um, and a lot of times when you have a, a goal, um, if you try to just Im- immediately be in the final stages of it, that's going to go haywire. But it's something that I think could be useful, um, uh, a goal to, to strive towards where we stop um, putting things in such strong moral language. Um, and instead, we just talk about 
you know, what is their most reason to do or what's the best way to live um, instead of saying, you know, you're morally wrong because you did this. Because um, I think, again, that kind of language is partly uh, responsible for the increasing divisiveness in society where it just feels like it's it's us versus them. We're good and they're evil. That seems very dangerous. And I think one way to, to remedy that is to, to tone down the language a bit. So what kind of language would you advise people to use? Yeah, so I prefer the the language of reasons. So um, again, if I'm if I'm thinking to myself, um, trying to figure out how to to conduct myself uh, in a particular situation, I could ask myself, what is their most reason to do? Instead of saying, what would be the morally right thing to do, or what are my duties or my obligations? I think it's just very useful to think what what is their most reason to do overall, um, and then I weigh those reasons against each other. Um, so that's to me one way to go. But I'm also um, very keen on virtue. I think talking about virtue concepts can be quite useful. So thinking about what would a just person do or what would an honest person do, um, thinking about having integrity. Um, if you think about these virtue concepts, I think that can also be quite reliable. And thinking about moral exemplars as well, um, thinking about what would Socrates do or what would the whoever your particular favorite moral exemplar would do. I think that's a very powerful source of motivation and guidance, really. I can't always articulate the precise principle that I'm acting on or that I ought to act on, but I can certainly think about, and I sometimes I do this, you know, what would Socrates do here or what would Epictetus, who's my favorite Stoic philosopher, what would he do here? And then it's it's as clear as day. He wouldn't be, you know, walking around in a fit of rage and, and throwing things and breaking things and complaining. And um, no, he'd be figuring out, okay, um, what are the, the different options available to me and which one has more counting in its favor? I'm going to go with that. And, and to me, that's a better way to proceed. You've referred a few times to the Stoic philosophers who are obviously very important to your approach. Uh, tell us a bit about the Stoics and, and what their philosophy was. Yeah, so I've, I've only recently gotten into the Stoics over the past year and a half where it's become a main focus of mine. But to me, this has been really uh, useful for me, not just for my research, but also for my life. Um, they had a few principles that I think are very plausible and very important. So one is called the dichotomy of control. Um, and this comes from Epictetus. Um, he says, basically, there are two sorts of things in life. There are things that we have control over and things we don't have any control over. And what you should focus on, of course, are the things that you do have control over. And those are the things that ultimately matter. Now, as it turns out, a lot of us live our lives focused on the things we don't have control over, things like our social status or reputation or um, how famous we are, how much money we have, um, even our health. Now, you have some control. I can maybe be more prudent with my finances and try to get a job that pays more. Um, I could try to protect my health. But ultimately, those things can be taken from me at any time. And so if you invest your whole sense of well-being in those things, that's a recipe for disaster. Whereas if you focus on the things you can control, like your character um, and trying to be a good person, nobody can interfere with that ever. Um, and that's really important. Um, when Socrates uh, was on trial and he was going to have to potentially drink the hemlock, um, he said, Anitus and Miletus, his accusers, he said, Anitus and Miletus can kill me, but they can't harm me. And to me, that's like the most powerful sentence in the history of philosophy. Nobody can harm me because what really matters is not how much money or how much pleasure, or how much power. It's am I a good person? And they can kill me. They can do whatever they want, but they can't make me a bad person. To me, that's extremely useful. And this uh, 
basis for philosophy is something that has continued or it's something that we have tended to forget, do yes, you think? Yes. So the, the Stoics lost the argument, um, unfortunately, for a lot of historically contingent reasons. Um, one was the influence of the Abrahamic religions. So um, the the God of the Old Testament, for example, is a being who, you know, the, the, the perfect being created of the universe who was prone to bouts of anger. And so there, right there, you think, okay, well, anger can't be all that bad. Um, and the Stoic view often gets misrepresented. Another another reason why the Stoics, I think, um, did not win out is because it gets mischaracterized as, you know, you lose all emotion and you become this sort of robot and you don't have any feeling whatsoever. And that's just a mischaracterization. The Stoic view is compatible with emotions like joy um, and attitudes like gratitude, which I think are very important and very uh, much part of human life. Um, but sadly, people just think of it as, oh, you lose out on being a human being. And so, that's not really um, the view for me. Um, but fortunately, I think there's been sort of a renaissance or a revival. People are getting more interested in Stoicism again, not just in academic philosophy where people have been working on it for, for a while, um, but even in, in popular culture, you're seeing more of an interest in, in Stoicism, which I think is a good thing. In everyday language, when we talk about Stoicism, though, we talk about people who are able to cope with very difficult um, situations without feeling it. We talk about somebody who manages to go swimming in the cold sea when it's absolutely freezing and we'll say that person is stoic. Yes. And most of us regard that as just too frightening. Mm, yes, good. Um, that's true. And and so if you think about, oh, becoming stoic means I have to be someone who can do that. Um, maybe I just don't think that that's something I'm capable of. Um, but I, again, I think it's a matter of degree and you can become more or less stoic and you can engage in practices that can train you to be more resilient. And if you think about the person who can do that, we often, when we see people do those sorts of things, there is a sense of admiration. Like that's really cool that that person is able to handle this sort of physical discomfort or adversity. And I think to myself, maybe I should try to be more like that, try to become more resilient. Um, and I even do something myself that I've started uh, recently, which is uh, when I'm finished with my shower in the morning, I turn the water all the way to cold and I got my watch, my stopwatch, and I, I do three minutes of the freezing cold water. <laughs> um, and the reason I do this is uh, I think it's it's useful to to build resilience, to, be, to get used to being uncomfortable. Um, then you can handle things better because at some point it's going to be the external world that imposes the discomfort on you. And if you've been practicing, I think you're going to be in a better position where um, you're able to handle it and, and stay calm and keep your poise. And so, um, yeah, I think there are there's there's techniques that we can adopt to get ourselves closer, even if at first it seems like, you know, I could never be like they are. So do you think the fact that we live in a world where we have a great deal of comfort, those of us who live in a middle class, comfortable country, even anyone really who, who lives in a place where we have easily clean water, warm water, good food. Um, are we too soft? Uh, yeah, I think we are. And I include myself in this. Um, and I think this causes lots of problems. Um, one, of course, is um, it's harder to have gratitude when things go very smoothly for you all the time. Um, it's easy to take things for granted. I mean, this is this is obvious. Um, and also, like we we did evolve to be on the lookout for negative things, for dangers. Um, you know, it's very adaptive to to not be content all the time. 
um, and to think, okay, how could things go wrong here? Or is somebody out to get me? That was very useful as we were evolving. And what happens is we find ourselves in a situation where our basic needs are met for, for those of us who are fortunate enough. Um, I'm very comfortable, but I still, part of me wants to still look for something wrong or figure out, you know, who could possibly be out to get me. And um, this, I think, leads to unnecessary um, conflicts and animosity between people. And um, again, we, we revert to this tribalism in, in, in the political discourse now. It's pervasive where, oh, you you have that view. Well, you're on the, the wrong team. You're evil. You're the enemy. Um, and I'm good. And I think this is a very dangerous thing. And I think part of it is uh, connected to um, when you don't have any sort of practical problem you have to deal with, like, how am I going to eat dinner tonight? Then uh, you, it's, it becomes easier to sort of manufacture problems and, and make things seem worse than they are. And I think that that could be very, very dangerous. So this may also be why we're seeing such an increase in anxiety. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think anxiety is is something that affects a lot more people than people realize. So, of course, there's a certain amount of people who have a, a clinical level anxiety disorder, um, but there's... I think for most of us, we're, we have some amount of anxiety very regularly. And I think, the, to me, the best recipe I found is the stoic view where I just think about what ultimately matters. It's a matter of, of understanding what my value system is. If I think that what ultimately matters is my social standing or my bank account, then it makes sense to be anxious because who knows what's going to happen with the stock market or my job? Um, who knows if someone's you know going to gossip behind my back and tell spread rumors about me? Um, yeah, you should be anxious because the thing that you think is most important could completely crumble at any moment. But if what's most important is my integrity and my honesty and, and being a good son, being a good brother, being a good spouse, whatever, um, if that's what's most important, well, I can control that so I have nothing to worry about. And to me, like, that that uh, goes a long way towards alleviating the problem of anxiety. And do you think as a society we're getting better or worse at this? Uh, in many ways, it seems like we're getting uh, getting worse. Um, again, just because it seems like there's the prevalence of anxiety and depression and mental health problems seems to be going up. Uh, I'm not like an expert on the data on this, but from what I understand, um, it's becoming more and more of an epidemic. Um, but the good thing, I think, is that people are waking up to it and becoming more aware of it and taking steps to try to mitigate it. People have seem to have a better understanding of how, for example, exercise and diet can be very useful for mental health. Um, and meditation is something that's becoming very popular, which I think um, has, has been shown to have some benefits for this. Um, and people are, are learning that you need to talk to people more and like have real life conversations and, and become comfortable opening up if something's not going right. So um, in many ways, I think things have gotten really bad, but it's also there's reason for optimism because people are aware of the problem and there's a lot of work being done to try to fix it. So there's reason to hope. And something that could contribute to that would be an embracing of a kind of new stoicism where we concentrate on those things we can control and bring a, a rational conversation into our everyday discourse. Yeah. So um, you try to focus on what you can control and you try to mitigate the influence of negative emotions on your on your life. Um, and I think that's 
one way, and there's 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 many ways. I think it's not it's not that stoicism is the only way. And interestingly, um, if you look at a lot of Buddhist teachings, there's a very clear parallel with the Stoics. And I I, I mean I think those two traditions were the ones who, as far as I've seen, had um, the best insights pertaining to these things. But there's lots of traditions of wisdom, and you can get wisdom that's you know more contemporary, but um, generally, at the, at, the, at the very least, I think everybody should be trying to find some general framework of how they want to think about their lives and, and how they want to live, um, where it's not just sort of uh, going with the flow of society or just sort of going with the inertia of what they're used to doing, like really stop and reflect and think, you know, what are my values and how do I want to structure my life so that I'm going to be an excellent person um, rather than just, you know, what we tend to do, which is focus on you know, I want to accumulate as many pleasures as I can, have as much fun as I can, make as much money, have some career success. Those things are all fine, but that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be, I want to be as excellent of a human being as I possibly can. What do I need to do to, to achieve this and, and figure out which strategy you think is going to work for you? Dr. Tyler Paytas, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of the Australian Catholic University. Thanks, too, to Trade Karuna Rathna, one of our talented media production students here at ACU, for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it, too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy.